Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Alex Kruger, International Managing Editor in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor US in London. I'm Alona Ferber, Special Projects Editor in London. It's Thursday, the 23rd of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we're looking out to the summer of strikes. We are taking part of the strike because uh, we have uh, a lot of stress on the airport. Uh, we are doing our job with not enough people, so we need some uh, qual- uh, people who are qualified. Uh, we also want to have more uh, money for the weekends we, we work, so we have uh, a lot of problems to find people. Why are they happening across Europe? And why now? Then, Israel's legislators vote to dissolve parliament. We are standing before you today in a moment that is not easy, but with the understanding we made the right decision for Israel. What will the fifth election in three and a half years mean for the country? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, your ears have not deceived you. This is the first ever episode of the World Review in which all three participants are in our studio in London. Very exciting. Alex Alona, thank you for being with me for this historic event. It's great to have us all in in the same place. One of the things about being an international team is that we're normally in different time zones and different locations. Yes. Well, let's, you know, let's take advantage of this and get into it. So, starting out, strikes across Europe have thrown the continent into chaos just in time for summer travel with Airlines arguing that airports had sufficient time to staff up, and airports in turn noting that we're still in a pandemic. What's really going on, and is there a way out? So we're recording this during a week of tube strikes in London, so we should say it's not just airlines and airports. There's travel issues and strikes more broadly across Europe. Alex, can you tell us some of the context for all of this? So a lot of the travel-related disruption is a result of the pandemic, actually. It's kind of unwinding the effects of the pandemic. So during the pandemic, travel was massively restricted. Airlines and other forms of transport shed staff, they cut services. 
and they've been taken by surprise by the rate at which demand has bounced back. So all of a sudden, everyone released from two years of not being able to go anywhere, everyone wants to go everywhere and see people and do things and all the things that they couldn't do for so long. And the airlines and other organisations have been taken by surprise. So there has been um, trouble at airports in the UK, in Germany, in the Netherlands, across most of Europe. There are some strikes coming up in various places. All the flights at Brussels Airport were cancelled, I think, on, on Tuesday because no one seems to have prepared for this. And so there are massive queues, workers complaining that they are being asked to do too much. And then you've also got this effect of, and this is partly also pandemic related, loads of people left the workforce during the pandemic. So there are labour shortages in areas. So, I mean, if you go anywhere in London, you will see help wanted signs or we're hiring, whatever. It's just not possible for organisations to hire enough staff and get them on stream quickly. So there's this massive head of frustration building up. And then you also have inflation. Right. So, you know, it's it's a bit of a perfect storm. Right. So, I mean, just to sort of separate out two themes, many people are traveling again. So you have regular shortages and, and, you know, people being overworked and schedules not quite running as they were. And then separately slash additionally, you have conditions that sort of prime people to be frustrated in their jobs and thus strike. And some of those people are indeed in the travel industry. Yeah. And so what you see is that certainly on the railways, in the UK and and in other places, these are some of the people who kept working through the pandemic, Mm -hmm. sometimes in really difficult conditions. They were exposed to risk. Everyone else was, was sheltering at home when they could, and they had no choice. They had to go to work. They've got through two very difficult years. All of a sudden, inflation is surging. There is this wave of frustration breaking out at what people have had to go through and all the conditions that have just suddenly come together. And, you know, the inflation is driven from all different directions. But central banks, having been perhaps a little bit slow to get on top of it, have suddenly started ratcheting up interest rates and you've got to deal with inflation. But that means that people feel like they're being hit from all sides. And again, this is partly something that came out of the pandemic when central banks were creating lots of money, pumping lots of money into the economy to keep it going. And now all of a sudden there's there's a little too much money washing around, inflation is going up, and people are looking at their pay packets and saying, I can't cope with this. I can't cope with energy prices that are doubling or trebling in, in months. I'm going to have to choose between heating or eating. And for those workers in Unions, particularly in Europe, probably less so in North America, some of them are taking strike action. And this is what we're seeing now. I think in in North America, certainly you're seeing, because you've seen unionization in in some Amazon locations and some individual Starbucks. But I think more broadly, Alex, what you're describing is that, you know, you had this situation where certain workers realized how necessary they are to the functioning of society. And we saw how necessary they were to the functioning of society. And yet, I mean, we were perfectly happy to clap for them, right? But 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 not really support them in a material way. And now your your wages are worth less. You can understand. I mean, I, I think we can all understand why people are are striking or are quitting or are, are frustrated. Yeah, I mean, and of course, this frustration that Alex was speaking to is kind of goes beyond 
the travel sector, right? So you've, we've got here in the UK, the biggest rail strikes in three decades happening on the week that you happen to be in London. Yes. And the newspapers are reporting, you know, that we're, we're hitting a kind of 1970s style summer of unrest. So criminal defence lawyers, barristers, teachers, NHS staff, junior doctors. Um, there are also care workers at a particular medical trust company, private company in Bristol. There are reports that they're all thinking about strike action. So, you know, you've got lots and lots of different workers, like you said, who were doing those really vital jobs on the front line during the pandemic, who are saying, you know, inflation today, I think the ONS said it's reached now 9.1% in May. They're saying, you know, our, our wages just aren't enough. And the raises they're being offered, you know, don't hit that 9.1% in any way. So it looks like we're going to have weeks of unrest, like in the, like in the <laughs> 1970s. And you are seeing this in, I mean, it's it's manifesting differently in different places, but I do think that you're right, Alex, to say that you're seeing this in North America, in the UK, and across Europe. Yeah, because the pandemic was a global problem and right. the consequences are also global. But it, it is interesting what you say about places like Amazon warehouses unionising. And of course, what we've seen, what is really different from the 1970s, certainly in the UK, is the decline of union influence. Far fewer people are members of a union now than were 40 or 50 years ago. But the trend is slightly reversing. And you are getting people looking at ways of organising labour, even in, in workplaces where this has not been a particularly welcome development, I believe I'm right in saying. Absolutely. Well, we will continue to watch the summer of strikes, shortages, other... other Discontent. The summer of our discontent, yeah. We will continue to follow that in North America and in Europe at The New Statesman. Now, moving further afield, Israel's coalition government has decided it cannot continue and so will dissolve and send the country back to the polls yet again. As part of an existing deal, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett will switch places with his foreign minister, Yair Lapid who will be interim prime minister for the next few weeks or months. The election could be as late as the fall. Why did the government come apart and what does it mean for Israel? So, Alona, we are so excited to have you here today to pepper you with questions about this. I mean, the government was from the beginning spoken of as the sort of strange constellation of people who had happened to come, who had managed to come together rather to, to keep Netanyahu out. Why were they no longer able to hold together? The government was cobbled together. They call themselves the change government. They managed to survive, I think, for a year and a week. Um, and they were cobbled together of parties on the right, in the centre, on the left, and also the first ever kind of, you know, Arab party to be in a governing coalition. And they managed to come together after Israel had already been through, I think, four elections in two years or something, basically because they were all united in their goal to stabilise the country and keep former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu out. And Netanyahu, since he left, has stayed in opposition and carried on big in politics and is very happy, by the way, that this government is about to, is, is going to fall. And part of the reason that the government fell is, is a reflection of the problem that the system had in those four other elections, which is that lots and lots of small parties in Israel, those small parties divide along two blocks. You've got like a right wing religious block, which is made up of the more right wing parties on the spectrum and the Haredi ultra orthodox parties. And then you've got the kind of what's called the centre-left block, which also this time actually includes parties on the right. It's a little bit complicated. It's basically an anti-Netanyahu block. And neither of those blocks had enough of a majority. They need 61 to have a majority. It's a 120-seat Knesset. Neither of them could quite cobble it together. And so this government, after a year and a week, 
its razor-thin majority was basically gone because they'd lost MKs who had defected and left and rebelled against the government. And there were a series of crises. They kept losing on votes. They needed help from the opposition that you know, wouldn't give them help because Netanyahu wanted that coalition to go. Mm. So it was a really, really difficult year. But ultimately, what brought the government to its knees was something that relates to the rule in the West Bank. So ever since 1967, so for the past 55 years, every five years, Israel automatically, pretty much through a Knesset vote, renews emergency legislation in the West Bank that grants sort of civil law for Israeli settlers. So they're almost, they have the same laws that an Israeli would have in Israel, but extended to them. And of course, that doesn't apply to Palestinians living in the West Bank. And the government couldn't pass this law. The opposition, even though it would traditionally back it, refused to back it because they want the government to collapse. And within the coalition itself, there were party, an MK from a left-wing party and the Arab party that rebelled and refused to support what they said was a kind of, some people would term an apartheid system. Mm -hmm. Last week, Bennett, the outgoing prime minister, got advice saying that basically he couldn't extend that law any further than its deadline of the 30th of June. And if it, he couldn't get an extension, um, he said there would be chaos, a legal kind of quagmire. So he would resign under his deal with Lapid. Lapid would then take over. And then because they're calling elections, those um, emergency legislations get automatically renewed. Right. So kind of very, very ironically, even though really this is this is a story about a kind of dysfunctional system with too many small parties and not enough of a majority for either a right-wing government or a centre-left government, it's also a story about the fact that a government that kind of ignored, you know, when the government first started out, because there were so many different parties with very, very different ideological viewpoints. So you've got an Islamist Arab party and a very right wing party led by Bennett, who used to be a settler leader. Right. They kind of said at the beginning, we'll avoid controversies, kind of, which is code for, we won't talk about the Palestinian issue. We won't try to deal with that. Let's just kind of get the country going and pass a budget. But what brought it down in the end, which is really interesting, is this emergency legislation right. um, and ultimately the management of the conflict. And that's happened even though the government has at no point made any effort really to do anything around peace and in fact has kind of done the opposite. There's been lots of violence in the West Bank over from the Green Line, more Palestinian home demolitions, more settlement construction and a sort of the same attitude as under the Netanyahu government, which is let's just kind of ignore this and keep doing our thing. Let's talk about Iran. Let's make peace with UAE, sign a free trade agreement. Joe Biden is meant to be coming over. Everything's fine. But right. ultimately, you can't ignore the conflict. I do want to talk about the, the upcoming election. But as you say, they they build themselves as a government of change. Yeah. Would you say that with respect to Palestinians, they were more a government of continuity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they build themselves as a government of change, I think, very much to an Israeli market of voters. So, you know, for four election cycles, basically had most of the parties saying, just not Bibi, we're not Bibi, vote for us. And right. what's really fascinating, if you look at this, is, you know, Netanyahu is head of the opposition, vital force in Israeli politics. So many commentators are saying, all this has happened, but actually it's Bibi who still defines what happens in Israeli politics. And for people who are kind of watching Israel, when when these parties are talking about change, they don't mean a vision for peace and two states. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of not thinking about that stuff. They're thinking about much more immediate stuff. And I think partly this kind of idea that, you know, Bibi had this approach, you know, peace by strength, we'll be here, we will make peace with the region, the Palestinians will kind of accept us or some version of that. And that's pretty much what these guys did as well. There was kind of no effort, even including, you know, there were parties in on the coalition. So Labour, Meretz, 
where the Islamist party Ram, who are definitely not on the right, but they they couldn't, you know, nobody was going to kind of push any of those issues because they needed the the coalition to survive to give the country some stability. So speaking of the defining force in yeah. Israeli politics, what does this election mean for Bibi? For Bibi. Well, first of all, he's very happy. He was so happy when they when they announced it. So the law to dissolve the Knesset passed its first reading today. It'll get two more readings. And there's some reporting that potentially he he could try to like cobble together. I don't, I'm not sure exactly how this works technically in terms of the legal stuff, but he could, in theory, cobble together a majority and form a government without going to an election. But it looks like the election will happen. Bibi's very, very happy. He's been trying to kind of hamper this government and cause problems, get defectors to leave, causing problems with the government, like not supporting this emergency legislation passing when that block definitely supports the continuing civil law for settlers in the West Bank. Some commentators would tell you, you know, Bibi is completely, his only focus is he's still on trial, charges of bribery, corruption, his way of keeping out of jail is basically, and this is like a crazy long-term gamble that, you know, nobody could guarantee. It's it's really amazing to see that he's still so focused on it potentially, is to get voted in as prime minister, get rid of the attorney general, pass a law that would make him immune or make it illegal to, I don't know, put a prime minister on trial. And then, you know, he can just, he can never go to jail and he, he'll be free forever. So that's the kind of leader we're talking about. He's really, really focused on that. And he spent many years kind of undermining the legal system and telling his followers and supporters there's a real cult around him. There are people who think he's the best thing that ever happened to Israel, that that he's the political victim of this kind of leftist shadow state that's trying to keep him down. I think also he, you know, aside from his own kind of personal future and political future. He also believes he's, you know, God's gift to Israel and that he really is the best leader the country ever had and that the current leadership is sort of running it into the ground. But, you know. Okay. So he's deeply convinced of his own importance and is running again and will try to to get that position back. Lapid, who I think to some commentators is billed by some commentators as sort of the anti-Bibi. And you can decide for yourself yeah, whether that's yeah. fair or not. But but he's going to come into these elections as interim PM. prime minister. He will be the be hosting Biden's first presidential visit to Israel. Does that matter at all? Does it does it help him that he'll sort of be acting as prime minister when this is taking place? Yes, so I think Lapid is definitely, you know, he used to be a journalist. Uh, he came into politics, I think, in 2011, around the time that kind of Israel was having social protests at the same time as the Arab Spring. And his party is called There Is a Future. He was this kind of new force in Israeli politics, a centrist force, liberal force. He's definitely kind of shown himself to the Israeli public over the last however many election cycles as being kind of like a reliable good guy. He, You know, he made compromises to build that coalition when him and Bennett announced that they were going to dissolve the Knesset on Monday night and they gave a speech. You know, Lapid and Bennett talked of each other as friends. Lapid literally said, I really love you to Bennett in front of the entire country. They've got a really good relationship um, and they've managed to make a lot of compromises for the sake of the country. So I think for Bibi, you know, Bibi's going to be running and saying things like, you know, this left-wing government led by Lapid relies on Arabs, you know, don't vote them in. And Lapid will hopefully be saying something a bit more sober than that about Netanyahu. But I think for Netanyahu, the polling at the moment shows that neither side can cobble together enough of a majority anyway. I think Bibi is around like maybe no more than 60. The centre-left have around 56. So at the moment, it looks like if they went for an election today, 
that you wouldn't see such a different result to what you saw last time. And we'd still have the same problem that we have. And maybe they'll go to another election a year later. Well, another one that we will continue yes. to watch. Alona, you'll have to come back on to update us on how it's all how it's all playing out. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.
But for now, we are going to move on to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Really well done. Really nicely done. The advantages of being in the same place. (laughs) Okay, so our question this week comes to us via email from Anish. Anish, I'm hoping that I'm saying your name correctly. And if I'm not, I apologize. But the question was, how is the United Kingdom viewing the rising tide of Islamophobia in India? This question's from Mumbai. So I'm going to broaden this out slightly to answer the U.S. and then I will throw it to you too. And you can answer it from the U.K. perspective. So the way that I see it is basically this. On the one hand, India is very important geopolitically to the United States. It's important to really the, I mean, there's pretty much bipartisan consensus that the Indo-Pacific is a place of great American interest, that America is going to counter China, and that India is necessary to all of this. And this is even despite some frustrations with India not being more full-throated and supportive of Ukraine with respect to Russia's war in Ukraine. Having said that, Biden's basic pitch of democracies countering autocracies, you know, India is meant to be a partner in that. That really starts to come apart once you sort of scratch the surface and look at human rights developments or the reversal thereof in India. And I I know that there are always people in, in, in Washington and Delhi who say, well, also in the United States, yes, fine. But the reality is if that if every time there is a Hindu religious festival in India, or often when there's a religious Hindu festival in India, Muslims are attacked, what does that do for your case that you're a democracy working in partnership with other democracies? So I think the Biden administration will continue to, to try to not process that, really. There are some Democratic lawmakers who don't agree with that and who will continue to speak up about it. I think it's still pretty muted, their concern over it, compared to various other happenings in in the world. But it is my impression that it's getting worse, not better in India. And so it's, it's going to get more concerning, not less, for people who care about human rights. But but what about in the UK? I think it's received really minimal attention. I mean, it's just it has just not been on the agenda, partly because certainly in the UK, the government here has been beset by so many domestic troubles. Mm-hmm. Internationally, it's been focused on Ukraine. And really, almost nothing else is getting a look in. Johnson and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi have quite a good relationship. Johnson has been out there to visit. And there is certainly some support for Johnson within Indian communities in the the UK. And I don't think there's any desire on the part of the government to disrupt that by being critical of, of Modi and his government. So nobody is paying attention and I think if you ask most people, they would just say, what, what, what's the problem? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think you're definitely right that people just don't have the, the kind of the bandwidth, I think, to really think beyond their immediate problems, the cost of living crisis, coronavirus. At the beginning of the year, everybody was fascinated by Ukraine. And that's also not getting a look in anymore. People kind of aren't paying attention to that either. So I think it's not an issue that people are really as aware of as maybe they should be. I would also note that the last time we spoke about declining civil rights in India, somebody tweeted at me and said, why don't you talk about Israel? Well, listener, (laughs) guess what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's something that we've written on before, that we've had podcasts on before, and at the risk of being a broken record, it is one that we will continue to cover. The loss of minority rights in the world's largest democracy is a concerning story. Well, thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. 
That's all the time we have for today. Join us Monday for an interview with Chris Patton about Hong Kong. Now we have a last ask for you, which is if you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have already subscribed, we thank you. And we then ask you to please rate us five stars. That's five stars only and leave us a good review. It really does help. Alex, Malona, thank you both so much for being here today with me. Thank you. Thank you. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.